Hello and welcome to the audio ministry of Pure Heart Christian Center. We are located at 12236 Southwest 128th Street near the Tamiami Airport in the Kindle area. I want to invite you now to join our lead pastor, Dennis Penton, as he dynamically shares another life-transforming message from God's Word. you to turn with me this morning. Uh, thank you so much for your faithfulness and giving your tithes and offerings. As you settle into your chair, grab your Bible, turn to the very first book in the Bible, the very first chapter. going to begin this morning with by asking you a simple true or false question. True or false, God is the only one that can satisfy the empty longing of your heart. Amen. True Hallelujah. or false? True. You say true, I say false. And I'm going to prove it to you in a few minutes. When God created man, he created man, look at verse 26, in the image of himself. It says, verse 26, let us, who is us? God himself is talking not to himself, but to the Godhead. The Godhead Meaning the Father, the Son, the Spirit are interacting with each other and they're saying to each other, let us make man in our image. He's not talking to the angels because the angels cannot create. So he's talking to himself. From this verse and from other verses, we understand that God refers to himself in plural form rather than in singular form. In fact, the very first word for God in the Bible, Elohim. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. That word Elohim is the very first name of God. It appears over 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And what it is, it is the plural form of the word El, or Eloah. So think about this for a moment. God refers to himself in plurality. In plurality. Now, that does not mean that there is more than one God. Because here it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. God's one. But in His oneness, He has a triune, a, 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 a triune makeup that make Him one. So when God says, Let us make man in our image, think about what is God like? Well, what does that mean? He means... First of all, God has the ability to reason. God has the ability to distinguish. God has the ability to choose. God has the ability to love. And he's saying here in this verse, he's saying, we're going to make man, how? We're going to make man with those same components. What are the components? The ability to love, the ability to reason, the ability to choose, the ability to love. But 
What I want you to look at is that before he created Adam, one of the things that we have to understand, that I have to understand about God, is that God does not live in isolation. Because God is plural, God is plural, God has always understood relationship. He's always been in community, in relationship with himself, Father, Son, Spirit. So when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and you see creation, well, who was it that created? Well, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says the Father created it all. But the Bible also says the Son created it all. And in Genesis chapter 1, it says the Spirit of God moved over the water, so the Spirit created it all. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God that is Trinity, Trinitarian God, what did He do? He created it all. God lives in community. One of the one of the most horrific things that take place in the Bible was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus was on the cross that he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God forsake Jesus? Think about that before you answer. God had to turn his back on Jesus because Jesus took upon himself the entire sin of the world. For the very first time in all of eternity, the community that was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit was broken at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about community, when we talk about relationship, think about the nature of God. In verse 27, it says, And God created man, how? In his own image. So wait a minute. You mean to tell me God lives in community? Yes. God is a God of relationship? Yes, because God... Elohim means majesty, Elohim means power, but Elohim means us, plurality. It also means relationship. It communicates that God is a God of relationship. So, so when God created Adam, what did he put within Adam? The same abilities and the same things he had. Ability to create, to distinguish, the ability uh, 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 to decide between right or wrong, to choose. The ability to love or not love. God also created within Adam what? the need for relationship. It was inherent within God. It's inherent at the creation of Adam. It's inherent within each and every one of us. And look at what he says when he created everything in verse 31. It says, and God saw that everything it made, and it was what? It was very good. Now think about this for a moment. God created Adam with the need for interaction with other people. But after God's initial assessment of Adam, after his initial assessment of creating everything, he says everything is good. No, not just good. Everything is very good. But now look at over in chapter 2 for a moment. In chapter 2, look at verse 18. Because God takes a second assessment of Adam. And look at what he says in that second assessment. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. What am I getting at? What does that mean? Think about this for a moment. At this point, Adam is perfect, right? 
This is not a trick question. Adam is perfect, right? Adam is perfect, okay? Okay, he was perfect in every way. He wasn't just perfect in every way. He was in the perfect environment. Listen, he was even in a perfect relationship with God because the Bible says that he would walk with God in the cool of the day. How cool would that be to just kind of walk with God, you know, and just mosey on down through the Garden of Eden, a perfect environment, and just talk to God every day? How amazing is that? Adam, the perfect man, in perfect relationship, in a perfect environment. And here's what God says. Something's missing from him. Even though everything's perfect, everything is not perfect as you think it is. Why? Because he assessed it. Adam was missing something. And that's why he says, it's not good that man be alone. He, God understood that even though he was how? In relationship with the Godhead, Adam was not. And he understood what? That Adam was lacking a relationship. A relationship that not even God himself, not even God himself at that point could satisfy. I know we have a problem with that theologically. I know some of you right now like, What do you mean, Pastor? (laughs) Oh, you're blowing me away. No, no, no. Listen to me. Stay with me. Because it was was Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century Catholic philosopher, physicist, mathematician. He's the one that popularized uh, or coined the idea that inside of every man is a God-shaped void or vacuum that only God can satisfy. And you know what? That's 100% true. You have an emptiness in your heart that unless God fills it, you will forever be empty. You will forever feel like something's missing your life. The only one that can satisfy it or fill it is God. But, but, the Bible tells me here in Genesis 1 and 2 that we also have a void that only another human being can fill. Wow. Think about this for a moment. The fall hasn't even occurred. Sin had not yet entered into the world. And God's assessment of Adam is that, yeah, Adam has a God-shaped void, which I filled, but Adam now has a people-shaped void. And the only one that can fill that is Eve, or a suitable partner for him. Of course, we look at that story in the marriage context, and the marriage relationship is a beautiful relationship that, that provides fellowship and camaraderie and connection with another human being at the most intimate and the most profound of levels. But don't miss, but, but don't miss the importance that we need people. Because if you don't connect with people, you will be all alone. George Gallup did a survey many years ago, and he discovered that Americans, among other nations, is a nation where we are the loneliest people on the face of the earth. How can that be? We live in the middle of a community between Broward and Dade County, over 4 million people. What do you mean that we're alone? We are what John Ortberg calls in crowded loneliness. Yeah, yeah, we got a lot of people around us but not too many that we connect with. Not too many that we connect with on a deeper level. Not too many that that do what? That supply fulfillment for our need for human interaction. You need Jesus. 
I need Jesus. You need other people. I need other people. Without that, without that human component, I will forever be lonely and I will suffer all the ills that come with loneliness. So then what happens? So then we have the relationship between God and Adam and Eve broken in chapter 3 of Genesis where sin entered. It's an amazing story. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. And what was the first thing that happened when Adam and Eve sinned? When Adam and Eve sinned, intimacy was broken. Fear entered in. Guilt entered in. Shame entered in. They began to hide. They hid from each other. They even hid from God. Why? Because this is what sin does. Sin always breaks community. Sin always interferes with meaningful relationship. And so sin broke the relationship. And not only broke the relationship, sin eventually kicked them out of the perfect environment. And now here they are hiding. Hiding why? Because we're naked. Well, listen, today we still hide. Not because we're naked, but because we don't want people to see the naked truth about who we are. We don't want to bear our souls. And since that moment on, since that moment on, we've been hiding. Now, the interesting thing is that the Bible is a history book. And what is a history about? It's a history of salvation. But it's not just a history of salvation. The Bible records all of God's efforts to do what? To restore relationship with mankind that had fallen away. So when you see God interacting a couple chapters later with with Adam and then later on with Noah and then with Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and you go on, uh, you know, with Joshua and the judges and David and so on. All those stories about God, they're not just nice stories. They're stories that have an overarching theme and that overarching theme is God saying, I'm making efforts to reconnect with mankind. Because mankind fell away and broke away through their sin. And that fellowship was torn apart. And that relationship and that community that existed early on was done away with. Ultimately, God did the ultimate. Look at Romans uh, chapter 5 for a moment. And God did the ultimate by saying, I'm going to restore my relationship with mankind Once and for all. How? By sending my son Jesus to pay the ultimate price. Right? So now, look at verse 8. It says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Think about this for a moment. Jump over to verse 10. But think about what it says in verse 8 for a moment. It says, While you were at your worst, God was at his best. God, listen, you may be here today and you might be saying, I'm not worthy to even come to church. You know what? You're right. But thank God he accepts us anyway. Because God never, how is, listen, those of you think, I got to clean up my act before I come to God. How has that been working for you? Doesn't work very well, has it? Why? Because you ultimately realize that you act and continue to be cleaned up more and more and more. And you'll never get to the place where you say, well, you know, God's going to accept me. Now, some people might have the illusion that that happens, but that's not true. So here's what this, what this verse says. It says, while I was at my worst, when I was still a sinner, 
When I was rejected, when I was unloved, when I was at my worst, God still loved me enough to send Jesus Christ for me. Look at the person next to you. Man, that should just show you that God loves you immensely. He accepted me at my ugliest point. You come to Jesus, not when you're at your best, but when you're at your worst. He accepts you at your worst. Why? Because your best is never good enough. Right? So, so we go on. Look at verse 11 as we go on. It jumps, I mean, 10. It says, for we were restored. Look at this. Relationship restored. We were restored to friendship with God by the death of his son while we were still enemies. You and I were enemies of God beforehand. And yet God says, you need relationship. And here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to restore relationship. The relationship of what? A friendship. How amazing is that? Friendship. A new relationship, restored to friendship with God. And look at verse 11. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship. Elohim. God of power, God of majesty, creator God, God of relationship, was always interested in what? In having relationship with you. And the very first, one of the things that the cross of Christ accomplished, it allows me to become a friend of God again, even though I was an enemy. It allows me to come into relationship with God, even though I was far off. All because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in making us friends of God. Look at the person they say, Congratulations. You're a friend of God. Remember you guys when you were going through school and, and you saw that popular person? Chances are maybe, maybe some of you guys were the popular people. I wasn't. Uh, but you remember how hard you tried to just kind of be accepted in the group of populars. Okay, uh, the, the popular people. And, and you know, sometimes it happened and sometimes it didn't. And when it didn't, you just kind of felt, man, so rejected. Listen. Jesus Christ died for you. How? So that he can involve himself with you. So that you can be in his circle of friends. To me, I think of that. I say, man, what an amazing blessing. I think, man, that, that, is, that is so cool that God will restore that relationship with me in such a way to call me his friends. Colossians says the same thing because of time. We won't look there. Uh, but, but think about this for a moment. When Jesus Christ uh, walked this earth... He gave us the model for Elohim, the God of relationship. What did he do? He ministered to the multitude. But he lived in relationship with 12. He ministered to the masses. He healed the masses. He fed the masses, the thousands. But he only connected with a few, in fact, 12. And then out of those 12, he connected with three on an even more personal level. Think about that. God valued relationships so much that when he came to this earth, instead of saying, I'm going to be friends with everyone, he says, I'm going to get really close to just 12. And he was only with them for about three and a half years. Now, I say that because... God values relationships. The reason that we live in this crowded loneliness that John Ortberg would call it is because we don't make time for friendships. 
and yet friendships are the key to our success. So fast forward a couple years after Jesus' death, and we reach the first century church. Point number three, if you're following the outline. See, Jesus didn't only reveal to us the, the heart of the Father, but He revealed to us the strategy for the church to be successful and for the church to reveal to us the God of relationship. Think for a moment. Look it over with me, Acts chapter 2. We've read this many times over, especially if you've been in this church for a couple of years. You realize this is almost like one of our key verses when it comes to small groups. But look at what happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, They spent their time together, learning from the apostles, taking part in fellowship, and sharing in the, in the fellowship meals and prayer. Prayers. So many miracles and wonders were being done through the apostles, and everyone was filled with awe. All the believers continued together in close fellowship and shared their belongings with one another. You cannot have close friendships until you continue together. Some of your Bibles say they met together. You cannot have a friendship unless you meet together. The fact the more you meet together, the closer you become as friends. The least amount of time that you meet together, the further apart you become as friends. Yeah, you might be acquaintance or yeah, you might connect with people on a different level. But here's the, here's the principle. You want to have friends? The Bible says you got to show yourself friendly. How is that shown? The Bible says they met together. In other words, they made time to cultivate friendships and to cultivate relationships. Most people today are lonely because we value our jobs, our achievements, and all other things above our friendships. And so we view friendship as something that we will do if we have the time left over. So no wonder we're so alone. No wonder Gallup says we're among the, low, the loneliest nation in the world. Why? Because we have time for everything, but it's kind of like relationships are not all that important. I don't have time for that just yet. But until you start making relationships a priority, you know what's going to happen? You are going to forever be lonely. You're going to forever have that people-shaped void that no one can fill, not even God himself. Meaningful relationships don't just happen. They come through deliberate intentionality. You have to make time for them. Now continue. Let's continue in verse 45. Says, and they would sell their property and possessions and distribute the money among all, according to what each had need. So they got together and they realized there's a need. You know what? We've got to get together. We've got to help them out. Why? Because they valued friendships more so than they valued what they owned. We value what we own more than people. They value people more than what they owned. Now, look at verse 46. Day after day, they met in a group in the temple, and they had their meals together in their homes, eating with glad and humble hearts, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And every day, the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. What did God do? 
God gave them people. Why did God send them people? What? Because they valued people. What was the strategy that the early church used? It was a two-fold strategy. They met in a large group like this in the temple. But it says they also met house to house in a small group. Those two components were absolutely essential to their success because they did that. You know what happened? God began to add to the church. That church began to soar. In fact, something that you might not know, you know that there were no church buildings for the first 300 years during the, the infancy of the church? For the first 300 years, there were no church buildings. Yet, that was when the church grew the most. Well, let's get rid of the buildings then, Pastor. No, no, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that what, what caused the church to grow was what was the relational factor, the relational component that sometimes disappears in the large group. So we should just meet in small groups and never mind the large group. No, 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 no. The early church did both. You know why? Because both of those components communicate the nature of God. Now, what is the nature of God? Think about this for a moment. Are you still with me? Think about it. The nature of God. When you think about God, you think about, wow, God's awesome. Wow, God's majestic. Wow, God's holy. Wow, God is above all other things. God is untouchable. God is powerful. Yeah, yeah, you think all those superlative descriptions of God, but you also think this. Yeah, God is love. Yeah, God is close. Yet God is personal. Yet God walks with me. You mean the God that's out there? The God that's on his throne? Yeah, the God that's on his throne also lives where? He lives in my house. Wow. See, that's the two-faceted side, the the two-sided coin of the nature of God. God is great. God is most high. And God is near. God is most nigh. You get that from Isaiah chapter 57. I, the Lord, am most high God, but also the most nigh. I live with those that that are broken in a contrite spirit. God that you can never attain, that you can never touch, that you can never approach for fear that you die, is also the God that comes and lives in my heart when I open my heart to Him. Is the dual nature of what God is like. So think about this for a moment. That is God's nature. This is how the early church met. And each of the groups in which they met represented the two-sided nature of God. The big group is supposed to display what? God's power. We sang it today, man. There was force in here as we sang. We felt God's presence. Man, we felt God touch us in a great way. But you know what? God's also personal. Where do we feel that personal touch? In the small group. So they met in the temple courts, large group. God is great. God is most high. God is transcendent. But we also sense God being close. God knows me. God connects with me. God encourages me. God is near to me. He's not far off in some distant galaxy far, far away like Star Wars fame. He's close at hand. This is why those two components are absolutely essential for the church to be healthy and for the church to grow. We grow as we give ourselves to those two components. You know what Ralph Neighbor? Ralph Neighbor was one of the gurus of small, modern day small group uh, ministry. He says, 
the two-winged church would fly. He called one wing the large group gathering, celebration service, and then he called the other wing the small group or the cell group uh, of ministry of the church. He says, if the church has both those wings strong, you know what, that church is going to soar. The church is going to soar. But if one of those wings is missing, you know what, you're not going to get off the ground. And that's not just true for the church, that's true for your life. You come to church and say, well, you know what? I love my small group and I don't need the big church. No, 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 no. Listen, you're just spiraling down out of control. Why? You're missing a wing, brother. If you just come to church on Sunday, yeah, you might get the excitement. You might get a component of what God wants to do in your life. But listen, there's no accountability. There's no intimacy. There's no personal touch. There's no relationship. There's nothing that's going to continue to move you on into the next direction. And the same thing, if all you do is go to the small group and you forsake the large group, then you know what happens? Then all you're going to do is get the personal touch and you just become watered down, not committed to anything except your little circle of friends. You need both. You need both to succeed. Now, I want us to look, before we close, I want us to look at some of the, some of the blessings of the small group. Because this is the way, what, what the church did in the first century, how they modeled how they modeled their get-togethers, large group, small group format. The same is necessary in the 21st century. We need that today. So now, what are some of the benefits or the blessings of, of gathering in a small group? Number one, I challenge any other organization to claim this. Jesus says he's with them. He says, where two or more gather in my name, I'm with you in the midst, it says in Matthew. Wow. You mean that when I go to my small group, when we open in prayer, wow, that ushers in the very presence and understanding that Jesus Christ is there. Jesus Christ is there. He's with us. This is why you shouldn't forsake the meeting together with small groups. What's the next thing that happens? What is the next blessing? Not only is Jesus there, but here's the next thing, is that I grow spiritually. You know what happens when I mean that I grow spiritually? I become a better person, don't I? How many of you guys feel like you can get better? Only two or three of you. Okay, the rest of you, you're either down and out or, or you're there already. Listen, I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. I need to get better. You need to get better. We all need to get better. And here's what a small group does. The small group helps me to become a better person. Why? Because we all have, we should have, we should all have two groups of friends. We should all have two groups of friends. A group of friends that what? A group of friends that we lift up and a group of friends over us that picks us up. In other words, we have a component. There's a group of people that I'm helping along and there's a group of people that are helping me along. If you only hang out with the people that you're trying to help along, guess what's going to happen? They're going to drag you down. They're going to bring you down to their level. You will never excel. Hence the saying, if you want to soar like an eagle, you've got to stop hanging out with turkeys. If all you do is hang out with turkeys, how can you ever strive for excellence? How can you ever strive for perfection? How could you ever strive for getting better? Why? Because I'm hanging out with a group. They're not interested in that. So I'm becoming just like them. I need a group. I need a group that's calling my attention and saying, man, you can do better. Man, you can come up. Man, you can be excellent. Man, you can improve. Man, I know we're praying for you. You're going to do fine in this area. I need both those groups, don't I? There is no other group that's going to do that for you. What other group is going to call you to excellence if it's not 
the group that's existent within the small group of the church of God. So it helps me get better. I become better. I make better decisions because the decisions are based on prayer and they're based on encouragement. I'm not all by myself. I draw closer to Christ. I begin to understand the attitude of Christ. Why? Because I have people around me that are encouraging me to do so. If no one's around encouraging me to do so, listen, the world's not telling you, you need to be more like a Christian. If they do do that to you, then it's really based out of guilt. Ah, you call yourself a Christian and look what you did. Right? No, no. The world's not calling us to righteous living. I need a small group. I need a small group that will encourage me to get better. A small group that will encourage me to become selfish. You know what happens when I'm by myself? When I'm by myself, when I'm isolated, you know what I do? I become more and more selfish. It's all about me. Help me out. Get me out of this. It's all about me. But when I'm in a group, you know what happens? I learn to see, wow, that group, there was a brother there. And he had a need for a washing machine. And the group, you know what they did? They got together and they bought him a washing machine. How powerful is that? This brother needed a car. Somebody gave him a car. This lady needed, you know what? She needed $400 for her rent. Somebody came and gave her the $400 for her rent. What happens is that we learn. What do we do? We, we learn to be less selfish because we're in a small group. Not only that, but our faith grows when you're in a small group. You become not only self, less uh, uh, selfish, but, but you grow because the Christian life... Listen, the Christian life can only be demonstrated in the context of others. You know in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's, all, there's about 58 commands to the Christians that deal with the words one another. Love one another. Be patient with one another. Prefer one another. Esteem one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. 58 times there's a context. One another. Listen, if you're not in a small group, who are you going to one another with if you don't have one another? You can't one another with anyone else unless it's another, right? You need someone else to one another with. 58 times. So you're all by yourself. You can't fulfill the commands of the New Testament unless you're in community with other believers. And it'll help you to, to, to show the, the one another to live the one another another but you know what god's giving you spiritual gifts and those spiritual gifts they can only really be used in the context of a small group you can't use many of you guys come here the format the agenda everything is set really the gifts of just a few people are highlighted the song leader maybe a few testimonies maybe you know some musicians and and the pastor speaks and so forth just a few people kind of control everything that goes on in the celebration service but in a small group what you can exercise your gifts. Some of you have gifts of prophecy. Some of you have gifts of teaching. Some of you have gifts of exhortation. Some of you have gifts of administration. You have a lot of gifts. You can utilize those within a small group. That's exactly one of the, one of the, the benefits of being within a small group. Here's the other, the other thing that's beneficial to the small group. Is that in the small group, I'm free to be myself. You can stop hiding. You can come out of hiding now. In church, you know what? We always put our best foot forward. We always got our best clothes on. We always got the cologne on. But listen, you might go to your small group straight out of work. And you're sweaty and you're smelly and your hair is all messed up. That's okay. Even more so than that. In your small group, you could talk about the issues and the challenges in your life. And not fear rejection. Because everybody in that group knows that they're in the same boat. And if they judge you, the only thing that tells you is that they're Pharisees. And we don't like Pharisees. So what, what happens within this small group? You know what happens? I'm free to be myself. 
And so that need of loneliness is addressed. Here's two more, and I'm going to finish up real quick. The other thing that we enjoy is we enjoy better. You know you're healthy. You know that you live a healthier life when you connect with other people? You really knew that. I saw that a couple of times. You're like, no, 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 wait a minute. Let me read this again. Yeah, you are healthier. You know, and I give you a list of things that you can, uh, that have you three times less likely to die in early death, four times more likely to suffer emotional burnout. Uh, if you don't have, uh, uh, if, if you don't have close friends. So in other words, close friendships become a disease preventative. I read something and I thought this was fascinating. Nine year study with 7,000 people. Check this out and don't misunderstand me and don't misquote me. Okay. So I gave you the disclaimer first up front. 7,000 people studied over nine years. Researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those that had strong relational connections. Three times as likely to die if you're a hermit, if you're an isolationist, if you're a separatist, if you're all by yourself. But check this out. It says, people who had bad health habits... Here's where I don't want you to misquote me. People that had bad health habits, such as smoking, poor eating habits, excessive alcohol use, drug use, and obesity. People that had these bad health habits, he says, but, they had, but had strong social ties, lived longer. Live, look at the person they say, longer. They lived longer than people that had great health habits. People that lived in the gym, that practiced exercise and diet, but that lived isolated. Wow. Blow my mind. I know, look, you guys are talking amongst yourselves and I know, I know what you're thinking. No, no, I'm not telling you to go out there and drink and smoke and do drugs. I'm telling you a study that to me was fascinating. Here's what the study concluded. The study concluded, the research concluded that it's better to eat Twinkies. How many of you guys like Twinkies? Nobody eats Twinkies anymore. Yodels? No? Pizza? Better to eat frozen pizza, okay, with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. Yeah. The importance... And the power of relationships. They make you even live healthier. They add years to your life. And of course, the last component, and we've talked about this so long, is that, you know, small groups. You know, every recovery group in America has one thing in common. Every doctor, every psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever, that are dealing with people that have dysfunctions and negative habits and negative thoughts and life-controlling problems, they always encourage you to do what? Find a support group. Why? Because that support group will exponentially increase your success in overcoming these areas in your life. So that's the power of the small group. It allows me to do what? It allows me to overcome areas in my life where I feel desperately weakened. Areas in my life where I'm fearful that I might relapse. Areas in my life where I just haven't been able to get complete control of. A small group provides the power. Here's what God says. Here's what God says. Christianity 
was never made to be lived out in isolation. We experience God's power in the large group. We experience God's closeness in the small group. Every one of us here, every one of us here need to take this small group ministry that we're introducing in September and think about it seriously. This is for your own benefit. This is for your own growth. This is for your own sanity. This is for your own health. It's for your own health. It's a way that you will grow. And not only will you grow, guess what? The church will grow. The church will grow. Why? Because we're giving ourselves to something that was modeled for us. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It was important enough for God to say, it's not good for you to be alone. You and I have a people-shaped void that only another person in relationship can cure that loneliness. Today, I encourage you, don't despise entering into relationship with others that will help you deepen, deepen your faith. Commit to that group. 12 weeks is all we ask. And then again, 12 weeks later, we're going to ask you to do it again. Maybe with the same group, maybe with a different group. But, but you need this. I need this. Make time for it. Don't say, I don't have time. Make the time for it. There's plenty of groups that are meeting on off days, Saturday groups, Monday morning groups, evening groups, something near you, something away from you. But do what you must. But make sure that you add that other wing to your repertoire of success. Because when you have two wings then you're going to really fly. Let me pray with you right here. Let's close your eyes for a moment. Thank you so much for having joined us today for this impacting message. I trust that God has touched your life through it and stirred in you a renewed passion for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord is faithful, and He wants to touch your life in a powerful way. He alone can meet your deepest needs and give your life meaning, no matter what situation you may be in right now. So be encouraged, friend. Trust him and be assured that I will be praying for you. If you are in the Miami area and do not have a home church, why don't you come out and join us? We are near the Tamiami Airport in Kendall and located at 12236 Southwest 128th Street. Our service times are Sundays at 9 a.m. in Spanish and 11 a.m. in English. God bless you. I look forward to meeting you soon. Well, thank you for being with us. You've been listening to Pastor Dennis Penton and the audio ministry of Pure Heart Christian Center. It is our prayer that this message has been a challenge to your heart and your life. If you would like prayer, please call the church office at 305-969-7873. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you in prayer. For more information about us, visit our website www.pureheartchristian.org And also, while you're on Facebook, make sure you visit us at the Pure Heart Christian Center page and click on Like Us. Until next time, may God's Spirit bless you mightily.